This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on Radio 3CR, Melbourne, 8.55 on your AM dial. It's Erin Jones here. Um, This is my first show for the New Year, so uh, hello to everyone. We're actually going to be listening to a recording that we did of the Beyond Zero Emissions um, EV launch in Canberra. So we've got a fair bit to get through for that. Um, But before that, I just want to give you a couple of little quick notices on some BZE activities. We're having a stall and a number of talks as part of the Sustainable Living Festival in Melbourne. So if you want to go and have a look at their website, it's www.slf.org.au and you can have a look at, at that there. On the Sunday, we're also having a um, meet and greet event for anyone who might be interested in BZE, past or present. Um, so get, make sure you get along and have a listen and meet the new CEO of BZE, Vanessa Petrie. So that's a great opportunity to connect with people. We're going to get straight into this because we've got a lot of ground to cover with the BZE launch. So um, this is, as I said, from earlier in Canberra um, last year. And uh, enjoy. Uh, I'd like to introduce our second keynote speaker of the night. Her Excellency, Ms. Uni Klaustad. Uni is the ambassador of Norway to Australia, so another place that is leading the world in this space. She is a career diplomat who has served in the Norwegian Foreign Service for over two decades. She has extensive multilateral experience serving at Norwegian missions to the UN, NATO, and the EU. Most recently, she held the position as director, head of section for security, police, and North America at the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where she was responsible for NATO cooperation Operation, UN peacekeeping, bilateral relations to the USA and Canada, as well as security sector reform and global security challenges. Prior to 2009, as Minister Counselor to the Norwegian Mission to the European Union in Brussels, Ms. Klovsted coordinated the mission's work on the EU's foreign and security policy, including security and defence policy. She had previously held the position of Second Secretary to the Permanent Mission of Norway to the UN in New York, as well as First Secretary to the Norwegian Mission to NATO in Brussels. Please, everyone, join me in welcoming Her Excellency Ms. Uni Klovsted to to the mic.
Thank you very much for that very thorough uh, <laughs> introduction uh, with my CV. Thank you so much for BZE for inviting me to this uh, launch of their report on electrical vehicles. And let me join the other speakers here tonight by uh, recognizing the traditional owners on whose land we meet today, the Nanawal people. I'm very proud uh, to talk about the Norwegian experience when it comes to promoting electric vehicles. Uh, I think we have been uh, very much in the avant-garde when it comes to the transition to zero-emission electric cars. And thus, I'm very excited that you have asked me to come to your launch today in order to share some of that experience with you. Uh, I'll go straight into the sort of hard facts, the numbers. the fleet of plug-in electrical vehicles in Norway, which includes also then hybrid vehicles, is the largest per capita in the world, with Oslo recognized as the electric vehicles capital of the world. My city, and also proud of that, obviously. In 2013, approximately 20,000 electric vehicles were registered in Norway. That was a lot in 2013, compared to the rest of the world and based on a population of 5 million people. By the end of 2016, that number is expected to have increased to over 100,000 electric vehicles, so a doubling in those three years. In September 2016, 28% of the new car sales in Norway were electric cars, and this does not include hybrids. And electric vehicles now have an overall 90% market share. Both figures far exceed those of any other country, and the figure is double that of the runner-up in Europe, which is the Netherlands, and is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. Moreover, Norway's fleet of electric cars is one of the cleanest in the world, because 98 or 100% of the Norwegian electricity uh, grid uh, is hydropower. According to surveys done annually by Electric Vehicles Association in Norway, EVs replaces 82% of the use of petrol or diesel cars. These numbers show that Norway has become a global model of how to get the public to embrace electric vehicles, an experiment that is attracting researchers and policymakers from around the world, and probably the reason why you asked me to come here tonight. So, how did we get there? The development that I just described in Norway is first and foremost due to a substantial package of incentives developed to promote zero emission cars. The incentives began already back in the 1990s and since then the incentive program has been gradually introduced by broad coalition of different political parties and it's really just a bipartisan policy in Norway these days with nuances I should say. The zero emissions incentives include the following, and I'm just listing them up now. No purchase or import taxes on electric vehicles. This was introduced all the way back in 1990. Low annual road tax. This was introduced in 1996. Free municipal parking, 1999. 50% reduced company car tax. This was introduced in 2000. Exemption from our GST or VAT, which is not 10% like here in in Australia, but 25%, so it's quite substantial. This was done in 2001. Access to bus lanes, uh, because we have uh, in uh, in Norway, we have this system that we have public transport lanes, which sort of beats the traffic, and the electric vehicles could use these. Uh, And no charges on toll roads or ferries. This was introduced in 1997 and 2009, respectively. 
tax reduction for plug-in hybrids. This was introduced in 2013. An exemption also from uh, the 25% GST or VAT on leasing of electric vehicles. To give you a perspective of what this actually means, uh, vehicle taxes in Norway are among the highest in the world. Value-added taxes and purchase tax add, on average, 50% to the cost of a vehicle. So as you can see, this is a major incentive. In addition, in Norway, all new roads are partly or wholly financed by road tolls, and this can be quite expensive as well. Especially commuters who drive to and from cities every day can save a lot of money this way. This road toll exception has also made Norway's third largest county, which is called Hordaland, and which is on the west coast of Norway, uh, into what is called now the electric car county. This county's infrastructure uh, is then very much characterized by this being a coastal uh, county uh, where there's lots of fjords where you need to use ferries and has the highest amount of electric vehicles with 32.7% in Oslo. It's about 29%. The Norwegian government has also launched a program to finance the establishment of at least two multi-standard fast-charging stations every 50 kilometers on all major Norwegian roads by 2017. So why are we doing this? Uh, it was a lot of incentives that I was just going through. The head of the Norwegian Electrical Vehicle Association once said that people aren't so green that they want to pay a lot extra in order to pay for an electric car. And this is the point of departure for our system. People generally make choices based on economy when they buy their car and not on the environment. Thus, the objective is to make the purchase price of electric cars competitive to conventional cars. Norway has invested heavily in the phasing in of EVs in the vehicle fleet as a measure to reduce the CO2 emissions from transport. The transport sector accounts for about a third of the onshore pollution in Norway, and reducing emission from this sector is vital to achieving the Norwegian emission cuts committed to as part of the Paris Agreement last year. The system is based on the pollute-to-pay principle and is constructed to make the least polluting cars the most attractive. Average emissions from new passenger cars shall not exceed an average of 85 gram uh, CO2 per kilometers, by 2020. This is also EU regulation, and I'm sure Caroline could correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's right, I see she waves. <laughs> the original plan introduced in 2013 uh, for the electric vehicles was for the incentives to extend only to the first 50,000 cars purchased in Norway. However, the EV sales are continuing at such a high rate that total number has now exceeded 100,000 new vehicles. And the incentives have just been extended to 2020. So what does the future hold? The success of the EV in Norway comes uh, at some cost for the government, obviously, or for the taxpayer, if you want to say, uh, because uh, this is, uh, we haven't left it up to the market. It has been a political decision uh, to really incentivize this, uh, incentivize this development that I've just uh, described. But there is also in the Norwegian society some controversies around this and also this very active use of incentives. And some of these complaints have included high public subsidies compared to the actual 
value of the reduced carbon footprint of electric vehicles, the possibility of traffic congestions in some of Oslo's bus lanes, and that is actually the success of this uh, incentive system has been very, very visible because it has then actually turned into a traffic problem in these tra public transportation lines. But I don't think it's a, is of such a magnitude that it's not sort of uh, it's not outweighing the, the benefits, obviously. Uh, and the loss of revenues for some of the ferry operators uh, due to the large number of electric cars uh, that are exempted from payment. But I should say that, that it's only the car which is exempted from payment, not the persons inside of the car. They still have to pay their ferry tickets. Um, sorry. The Parliament recently agreed to reduce and phase out some of the incentives beginning in January 2018. But a national rule has been adopted that zero emission cars should never pay more than maximum half the price of ferries, tolls and parking. In addition to that, local authorities have been delegated the authority to decide whether the electric cars park, for instance, can park for free and use public transport lanes. Uh, and in February 2016, the, the government opened for public discussion on its proposed national transport plan. And the plan will be presented to the Parliament in 2017. Among others, this plan proposed the goal that all new cars, buses and light commercial vehicles in 2025 should be zero emission vehicles. That is also a quite bold uh, ambition. What is clear is that tax incentives will stay in place until 2020. After that, they will be revised and adjusted in parallel with the market development. The overall signal from the majority of political parties is that it should always be economically beneficial to choose zero and low emission cars over high emission cars. To conclude, Norway's example shows that generous, uh, generous incentives work and might be necessary to facilitate the transition to an electric car fleet. The electric vehicle market has been through an amazing development during the last 10 to 5 years, and the increased competition between the producers reduces the prices. This will hopefully make it easier and cheaper for other countries to introduce economic incentives and for Australia with the possibilities related to wind and solar energy, this would be a clean vehicle fleet as well. Thank you very much for having me here today. Thank you very much to Ms. Clovestead for coming and, and sharing that information with us. Uh, incredibly interesting and inspiring to hear about the, the leadership and the success of EVs in Norway, that's for sure. Uh, so let's talk a bit more about EVs, shall we? Uh, next, I would like to introduce for the, the keynote presentation, or the, the major presentation of tonight, the VZE Acting CEO, Mr. Michael Lloyd. He'll come up and give us a presentation on the EV report itself. Uh, Michael is BZE's Head of Research and Acting CEO. He joined BZE from an environmental consultancy where he advised local governments and the private sector on reducing emissions and managing climate risk. Before that, Michael was the infrastructure lead on the UK government's Climate Ready program, working with energy and transport operators to improve their climate resilience. Michael has also worked in the climate change team at the Victorian government. As Head of Research, Michael is coordinating production of BZE's Industrial Processes Plan uh, and now let's give him a big round of applause to come and talk to us about the EV report. There we go, we're all working. Uh, I thought that was a really inspiring story about Norway. Um, thanks, Christina. 
yeah, it's it's vital to have these pioneers in areas like this, and Norway is generally a pioneer in the area of electric vehicles. Um, so thank you, Ambassador Niklovstad. And thank you too to Mr. Shane Rattenbury. ACT is also a pioneer, a genuine pioneer in Australia in the energy sector. Um, I'd also like to thank um, Jody Green, um, who's BZE's lone Canberra member of staff, and she's put a lot of effort into organising this event. Um, so thank you, Jody, and thank you also to the BZE Canberra team, and thank you to all the panellists, the people who've brought uh, electric vehicles, and to the, the staff at this venue um, at the ACT Legislative Assembly. Just a bit about BZE, Beyond Zero Emissions, if you don't know about us. Uh, we're quite unique in the sense that we're a climate change think tank that relies to a large extent on volunteers. So volunteers really um, help us deliver all aspects of our work, including our very robust uh, research. Um, we're also funded um, just by private donations. So you may have seen a leaflet on your chairs before you sat down. We've actually got a crowdfunding appeal out at the moment for our next major piece of research, which will be on industry, the production of things like metals and cement and plastics, etc. So if you go to our homepage, if you like what we do, go to our homepage and, um, and yeah, donate to our crowdfunding uh, appeal. So the EV report. Uh, this explores a transition of... Australia's entire urban car fleet in 10 years to electric vehicles and then cost that transition. This is in a similar vein to our main program of research work, which is Zero Carbon Australia program, which is taking the different sectors of the Australian economy and showing how they can get to zero emissions in 10 years. So we've covered electricity, buildings, land use, uh, Australia is a renewable energy superpower. And this electric vehicles report is part of the Zero Carbon Australia transport plan. So um, we've already had the high-speed rail report a couple of years ago, and we intend to have future reports on freight and integrated urban transport. And we've really got five um, kind of principles in our transport plan, which are to shift off fossil fuels, to electrify the transport system, with 100% renewable energy to reduce the number of road vehicles and to encourage a shift to more sustainable modes of transport, such as public transport, walking and cycling. So those are the principles that guide the transport plan. And I've got five main points in today's presentation. One is that conventional cars have to go. Two, electric vehicles have arrived. Three, the economics of this 10-year transition to electric vehicles and also for buses and measures that can get us there, measures and policies to support the uptake. So why do I say conventional cars have to go? Well, they represent 48% of Australia's transport emissions. Um, urban cars that our report focuses on represent 36%. And this is actually a number that has grown, been growing quite substantially. So it's grown 50% since 1990. Um, so 44 million tonnes of carbon dioxide come out of the tailpipe of um, cars in Australia. And it's set, if we carry on the way we are with conventional cars, it's set to continue to grow. 
So that's why we say conventional cars have to go. And also because now, as we know, there's, there's a replacement. So these are three of the electric vehicles uh, that have been for sale in Australia. Um, the Nissan Leaf, um, probably the best-selling electric, I think it is the best-selling electric vehicle in the world with a range of about 170k at the moment. That'll be getting um, longer sooner. Uh, and then the only two available today new in Australia, the BMW i3, um, range of 160k, and of course the Tesla S, perhaps the most famous electric vehicle in the world. So that, that, those are the ones that are available in Australia, but worldwide, pretty much every major manufacturer of cars that you've heard of has at least one electric vehicle. Um, so there's the Ford Focus electric, the Fiat 500 electric, the Honda Fit, um, the Renault Zoe. So Renault, um, Renault Zoe, have, um, there's a new, new one out, um, I think it's coming to Australia, uh, with a range of 400k, and that's, that's going to be in kind of the $40,000 price bracket, I believe, maybe a bit less. Um, and many manufacturers have multiple electric vehicles. And one of the most interesting pieces of news in the last year about electric vehicles is that VW, who we all know have heavily backed diesel for a long time, well, they don't like diesel anymore. They're going into electric. So their plan is to have 30 electric models by 2025. And they're putting billions of US dollars um, into their electric vehicle strategy. So often when you hear people talk about electric vehicles, when it's discussed in the press, you hear, this, um, you hear the term range anxiety. How far can they go as far as we need them to go? Well, in our report, we, we present some data um, for how far trips actually are. This is data based in Victoria. So it says that according to the transport survey, half of trips are less than 5K. Over 90% of trips are less than 30k, and 99% of trips are less than 120k. So 99% of trips are well within the range of uh, a standard electric vehicle these days. Uh, so those with range anxiety can relax. Apart from that 1% of trips, which is you know m maybe a bit longer, a couple of hundred k, um, and then we're going to need charging stations. And they're beginning, that doesn't appear very well, on the screen, but they're, be they're beginning to appear. Uh, so Tesla has um, nearly completed a charging network that'll take you from Melbourne uh, to north of Brisbane. Uh, there's an Australian company called Tritium that's building a, a charging network on the Queensland coast. There's a network in um, uh, south Perth and south of Perth. So this is starting to appear, charging networks for those longer journeys. So but what you hear less of about electric vehicles is they're actually great cars. In many ways, they're better than the fossil fuel cars that they're going to re replace. And if you talk to uh, owners of electric vehicles, one thing they love is the convenience of the fact that they charge them at home. So every time, as long as they remember to plug it in, every time they get into them in the morning, it's fully charged. So they don't actually ever have to worry about going to a petrol station. Uh, that's one benefit. And they're also really nice to drive. So they've got um, low centre of gravity and distributed weight, so they handle very well, and they accelerate incredibly quickly. Um, a Tesla uh, Model S, I think, goes from 0 to 100 in about four seconds. So that would be one of the fastest accelerating cars on the road. Um, but even the mid-range ones have very fast acceleration. So they're great to drive. 
So the centerpiece of our report is really some economic modelling that talks about this transition in 10 years to electric vehicles from the urban fleet, uh, but it costs it uh, over 20 years. And the costs that are included in that report, there's really three areas of cost. The capital costs are of the transition, so m mostly buying uh, new electric vehicles. Operation and maintenance costs, so that's um, uh, insurance, registration and, and, on, and repairs of vehicles, and the fuel costs, either electricity or petrol diesel. And we looked at two different options when we were costing them. So option one is just business as usual. We carry on replacing the fleet when, when cars wear out with fossil fuel cars and the, the fleet continues to gradually uh, rise over time as it has been. Option two, the interesting option, 100% uh, transition to electric vehicles in 10 years. So in that option two, the 100% transition, we looked at lower costs and higher costs because we don't know all the costs in, in the future that are going to determine the cost of the transition. So we looked at low and higher costs of oil price based on the uh, projections of the Bureau, uh, um, Bureau of Transport and Infrastructure in Australia. Uh, with the lower oil price, lower, um, the oil price hasn't really changed much um, compared to today, just great, which is fairly low, continues fairly low. Higher oil price, it rises. Um, maintenance costs. We, we know that the maintenance of electric vehicles is going to be less than fossil fuel cars um, just because they've got, they're so much less complicated. Uh, a Tesla S, I've told, contains 18 moving parts. A fossil fuel car would contain 100 times more moving parts than that. So there's just so much less to go wrong. Um, in the higher cost scenario, we said that the um, maintenance cost would be 25% less and in the lower cost one, 80% less. And then kind of the big one is what, what's going to happen to electric vehicle prices. They're still at the moment more expensive than a comparative um, fossil fuel car. When are they going to reach parity? So in the higher cost scenario, we said they'd reach parity in 2035. And in the lower cost scenario, in 2025. Now, one risk of doing this kind of work is that it's such a fast-moving area uh, even since we did this work, battery costs, which are the main reason electric vehicles are more expensive at the moment, battery costs have plummeted. So since 2010, they've come down 65%. In 2015 alone, they came down by a, about a third. And they're set to continue to decrease, people think, probably by about another two-thirds um, using the, the lithium-ion technology that's used today. So... Electric, uh, electric vehicles could actually achieve price parity way bef even before 2025, which we costed as the lower um, scenario. Um, plenty of people are projecting between 2020 and 2025, including Bloom Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So this is what those costs look like uh, over time. This is the business as usual scenario, which is, as, as you'd expect, is just a kind of um, flat line going upwards. The things to note in this are... Uh, the first thing is what we pay today for the status quo, for the, the, the benefit of each of us owning our own car, um, is getting towards $100 billion a year as a country and, and rising. And also what a big chunk of that is for operation and maintenance, so insurance registration and repairs. This is what it look like, looks like over 20 years if we transition to electric vehicles in 10 years. So quite a different shaped curve. You've got this big um, 
big peak here, which is the purchase of millions of electric vehicles, and then you've got a smaller one down the track, which is what we've assumed for the um, battery replacement, because the batteries uh, don't tend to fail, but they degrade um, in a predictable way over time, and at some point people will replace them. So how do these two cost curves compare? They actually work out about the same. So this is, this is the key slide from tonight's presentation because it shows that we could transition to electric vehicles uh, in 10 years and it could be cost neutral uh, over 20 years at, at an economy-wide level. So we've been using fossil fuel cars for 100 years now and they've come to be vital to our economy but also culturally they're key to us but we could overthrow that now in 10 years and it would be cost neutral because of the lower costs of maintaining and running electric vehicles and I just think this is a, a you know a really startling piece of research to show that we've, we're now at that moment when we can switch to electric vehicles at the, we're still at the moment where perhaps just a few enthusiasts have them but that's exactly where we were with lots of other technologies like you know, mobile phones and, and smartphones. And one day, just one person you, has got them and you think, why did they pay all that money? And then everyone's got them and you, people think you're weird if you don't have one. So we're, we're, we're at that moment. We've actually probably been quite generous to charging infrastructure in this. Um, we don't know how much charging infrastructure we'll need. So we've assumed that for every car purchased, there'll be a charger installed at home one an additional one somewhere else uh, in the urban area so that's two for every car plus um, long distance charging infrastructure a lot of people think we won't actually need that much but we've been conservative so yeah under our lower cost scenario transition to electric vehicles is cost neutral even under the higher cost scenario where electric vehicles don't achieve price parity till 2025 um, it's only 25% higher which is actually affordable to the Australian economy. That's about $20 per person per week. Neither of these scenarios is actually what BZE wants. So this is what we've costed. It's not a prediction, let alone what we want to happen. What we want to happen is fewer cars on the road. So in Chapter, I think it's six of our report, we look at achieving a redundancy rate, um, so this yellow area, um, of 9 to 10% a year. So that's... Um, cars of whatever type it is just becoming redundant because there are better options for people and in this in this graph so the redundancy comes up to meet um, squash out the uh, fossil fuel cars and the remaining ones are provided with electric vehicles this would be a much cheaper transition and it's what we should actually do and the way we achieve this is obviously as um, Minister Rattenbury was talking about we provide better options um, for of particularly public transport, so people don't need to own a car. But there are lots of new technologies and business models arising now which make it less attractive to own a car. And these are starting to bite um, in Europe, where young people especially are becoming less interested in owning a car, and they're using you know, Uber, car-sharing services, other e-hailing services, and on the horizon we've got different things like driverless cars, and this will drive down demand for cars and mean we don't have to own one anymore. So public transport is definitely part of the answer. Uh, 
And we also modelled in this report in a very similar way, we modelled a 100% transition to electric buses. Uh, this bus, this is going to be, looks like the ones you're going to be getting in Canberra next year in January. So this is a, a VAST bus at our Melbourne launch. This bus was there. It's a great bus. It drove from Melbourne to Sydney on a single charge. Um, and, you know, the quietness is actually quite strange, even stranger than the uh, quietness of an electric car, because you expect a bus to be juddery, smell a bit, and make a lot of noise. Um, so there's going to be three um, made by a vast, very similar to this in Canberra in January, I think it is, yeah. So this is the cost of the transition under the lower cost scenario. Um, buses would actually be cheaper if we, trans if we made the transition in 10 years than carrying on with the status quo. And that's because of the lower running costs, but buses are used a much higher percentage of the time than cars, so it would actually be cheaper. So I think the ACT government should just replace all their buses with electric vehicles, hundreds of them. And, and, and they're not really a new thing. Lots of cities have done this. Um, the 73 in London and all the single-decker buses in London, which is, um, I think, about 300, will be electric in three years' time. So... You know, electric buses are a proven technology. Even under the higher cost scenario, they're only 10% more expensive, which is about 72 cents per person per week. So, a rapid transition to electric cars and buses operating on 100% renewable energies, desirable, achievable, and affordable. But we haven't actually costed all of the benefits uh, of, a, of the EV transition. We've taken a very um, economic approach, but there are lots of harder-to-cost uh, advantages of electric vehicles. The obvious one is the avoided carbon emissions. So this would save about 6% um, of Australia's carbon emissions. But another really important one is an improved urban environment. Um, Improve, improved air quality. Air quality, I was reading this week, according to the um, World Health Organization, is the biggest single killer of any type in the world. Obviously, Australia benefits from better air quality, but even here it's estimated that 500 to 1,000 people die as a result of poor air quality every year. So it's not that far behind the road toll, although it gets a lot more exposure. Um, electric vehicles, zero tailpipe emissions. And obviously much quieter and there's a lot of research also on you know, the negative effects of noise on the urban environment. For example, people who live on noisy streets know their neighbours a lot lower, fewer of their neighbours than people who live on quiet streets. Energy security, also one that doesn't get spoken about <laughs> enough. Um, relying on foreign oil supplies for petrol and diesel costs tens of billions to this country every year. It's actually quite uh, an insecure position to be in. There's not much storage of oil in Australia. So if anything happened to those oil supplies that comes from a small number of countries, um, in two or three weeks there would be no, that we would run out of oil. Uh, and given that the whole economy runs on that, that's actually quite a risky position to be in. Move to electric, the energy is obviously made here. And improving the electricity grid. Um, this is perhaps slightly counterintuitive because electric vehicles are obviously going to be using uh, electricity and increasing demand. We show some um, modelling in, um, in the report. This is a week. The blue, the blue 
peaks is a week of uh, real energy usage in New South Wales and ACT during summer. So it's peaking every day in late afternoon. Um, the green areas are the theoretical charging of electric vehicles if all cars in ACT and New South Wales were, were electric. So it wouldn't actually add to the peak demand because they could be charged in the areas of lower demand. Um, and they wouldn't, for that reason, they also wouldn't add to the required peak capacity, even though um, they would require about a fifth more energy than is, uh, electricity than is currently used. Plus the fact that electric vehicles can act as storage for the grid, and there are trials in the UK and other European countries at the moment of vehicle-to-grid technology, where vehicles provide electricity at times of, of peak demand. So how do we get there? Um, I, th I think we're going to get there anyway. I honestly do. I think EVs are a better technology. It's just a question of the price coming down. But how do we make sure uh, Australia gets there quickly and follows uh, the, the lead that's been shown by Norway and a couple of other countries? Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of policies, uh, and Ambassador Klovstad mentioned some of them, a lot of them to do with tax incentives. Uh, so we could reduce or remove taxes on the import of electric vehicles. Uh, we could transition government fleets to electric vehicles. Make car emission standards progressively more stringent. Lower or eliminate registration fees for electric vehicles. Allow access to transit lanes for electric vehicles. Plan new car parks and apartments for charging infrastructure and set state and national electric vehicle targets. I think we heard that pretty much all of those have been implemented in Norway, and other countries have uh, implemented some of them. N not many of them have been implemented here. Um, the, the one that I think should happen really quickly is um, that government fleets should uh, set targets for becoming entirely electric. I know that the, the uh, ACT government has, was it 17 electric vehicles already, um, but I think there's a case for having a target for making that 100% uh, before long. And that gives it all the users of that, those fleet cars exposure to electric vehicles and finds out that they're really great to drive. So, to conclude... A rapid shift to electric cars and buses operating on 100% renewable energy is desirable, achievable uh, and affordable. I, th I think electric vehicles are going to happen. That's a good thing. There's a lot of benefits, not least the fact that they uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions to zero when powered by 100% renewable energy. Um, and I think we all want Australia to be one of the first countries to benefit from this and not one of the last. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Uh, now we have some, you know, we have time for the interactive part of the night, so I'd like to invite all of our previous speakers up to the panel. And we also have three more wonderfully esteemed panel members that I'd also like to invite to, to come up and grab a seat, and, and then we can open up for some questions. As they're coming up, I might introduce them, and that will give everyone time to formulate some, some questions. Uh, so, first of all, you've met the three previous speakers, but we also have Professor Penny Sackett. She is a physicist, astronomer, former director of the ANU Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics, and former chief scientist for Australia. She now serves as deputy chair of the ACT Climate Change Council, advising the ACT government, and is a member of both the business advisory board of the ACT's Renewable Energy Innovation Fund, and a science advisory board member of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. Thank you very much, Penny, for joining us on our panel. 
Our second panelist is Todd Eagles. Todd's in the Penny's in the in the middle, and Todd's right next to her. Uh, Todd is the deputy chair and strategy for the Electric Vehicle Council of Australia. Since 2006, Todd has been instrumental in progressing the energy industry, and since 2013, he has led the strategic arm of the EVCA. The goals of the Electric Vehicle Council Australia are to provide a focal point for the electric vehicle industry in Australia and to drive the uptake of EVs. Todd also manages energy efficiency programs, solar operations, and is currently deploying battery storage technologies at Actu AGL Retail. Our third panellist, Simon Evans, is a director at Beast Solutions. Beast Solutions works with government providers and business to provide the vital nexus for creating the energy systems of the future. Some beastly projects include the Canberra Institute of Technology Microgrid, energy service to Ginandera development in West Belconnen for 11,500 homes, sustainable buildings for the Metro Rail project, the Goulburn Community Solar Farm, and in Brisbane, the first microgrid for Defence Housing Australia. So join me, please, in welcoming all our panel members. And now I'd like to open it up to you guys out there in your seats. For anyone that has a question, for your questions, please keep them to questions. We don't have too much time. We'd like to hear from our our panellists. And if they are addressed to someone in particular, please just let us know who. We'll start from the front. Right, thank you. I am a Tesla owner myself. My car isn't on display, but I came down from Sydney and I charged here, or sorry, in Goulburn at uh, the Tesla chargers, and they are very quick. But and in Norway, I hear there are uh, lines of cars waiting to be charged, Tesla cars to be charged at the superchargers. And with the advent of soon-to-be-available fully autonomous driving cars and ride-sharing, there will prob- I, I suspect there will be less, uh, less charging at home and more charging at public stations because the cars will go from one customer to the next to the next without anything in between. Uh, or going home to charge. So uh, my question is, what part of the report has gone into predicting the future uh, demand of of, EV charging with the advent of electric vehicles marrying with the autonomous technology? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think I mentioned in my talk that the uh, we, we've made an assumption that there will be uh, a ch- uh, for every electric vehicle purchase there will be a charger installed at home, one in the urban environment, and plus there'll be a long distance charging network. So those are our assumptions on charging, um, which may be overkill because it's a lot more than um, you know petrol pumps at the moment. Um, in terms of we we haven't gone into project we, we, we've modelled. For the sake of modelling it and costing it, I guess we've modelled a fairly simple scenario and we haven't, apart from raising the prospect of driverless vehicles, we haven't modelled the impact that will have. Um, my name's Mark Spain. My question's to Shane. Shane, this is a bit broader than just electric vehicles, but uh, with your government, would it be possible that you could publish each year a very simple infographic 
of the carbon emissions in each sector of our economy in the ACT. So we just didn't leave trying to reduce our carbon emissions up to you and your colleagues in the government, but all of us in the community and in business could see how we're tracking annually in each sector of our economy and uh, begin a conversation where all of us engage in reducing those carbon emissions. Would that be possible? Uh, yes, it would. We already do an annual greenhouse gas inventory. Uh, I think your point goes to perhaps how we communicate it more effectively because it's there, but most Canberrans would know I'm about to release the next one sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, so we should have a think about how to communicate it more. Yeah, when I was looking at your figure of um, uh, the charging and how it might improve the grid, I could see that it beautifully infills overnight, which is every coal-fired power station operator's fantasy, isn't it, to try and have nice constant baseload. How do we make sure we don't end up down that path? We follow the example of the ACT and go to 100% renewable energy. That's, that's my simple answer. <laughs> I mean, uh, it actually fits in quite well with uh, renewable energy production because... You know, the, the fact that um, the, the wind blows, you know, we usually hear that, you know, sometimes the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, but also sometimes the wind blows and the sun... Um, clearly, in, in both what the Ambassador said and also in the BZE um, policy initiatives, some of them are at the federal government level, issues of import duties and the like. So they're ones we need to take up with our federal colleagues. I think they're all good policies. Uh, and certainly my colleagues took them to the federal election. Uh, locally... Uh, we need to have a look at those. Uh, actually, the, I think the ACT has lost momentum when it comes to electric vehicles, if I'm honest, uh, because there was a big push probably four years ago, Todd, you'll help me with this, where um, the Better Place project was seen as the way forward. Uh, and there was a real sense, if I go back in time, that that was going to be the answer for the ACT and it was going to be really effective. And when that collapsed... I think we lost momentum, and I don't think the work's been done since. So that's the job for me as the incoming minister, to pick that up and think about how to go forward. And some of these, I think, are very practical ideas. Yeah. OK, one more over here. And then after this one, I might actually throw to the other panellists if they have a couple of minutes in response to the report before so that we can hear from them um, and learn more about their response as well. Oh, hello, my name is Julie Chater. Um, the ACT government announced last year that it was also going to be trialling some hydrogen cars. Um, so I just wanted to uh, get whoever's view on this. Um, you know, when we're looking down to this avenues of new technology, um, you know, we need to look also at competing technologies. So um, does anybody have any view um, in the future of how uh, would could hydrogen and electricity both work together or, or Will one type of technology be eclipsed by another, or you know, what's the what's the current thinking in that area? I was going to suggest Todd answered it, but he doesn't want to. Um, <laughs> no, I I think we from BZE's point of view, we think hydrogen has some kind of role in a, re a renewable economy. Um, in the transport sector, perhaps for long-distance freight, for example, although we haven't done that research yet. In the area of um, passenger cars, I'd say hydrogen's just kind of behind electric vehicles. As we said, electric vehicles have arrived. They require a lot of inf additional infrastructure that doesn't exist already, whereas the electricity grid already exists. And the overall f efficiency of hydrogen from energy source to motive power of the car is far worse than 
a battery electric car. Um, so I think hydrogen's got some sort of role. We don't know what it is yet, but I think the focus at the moment should be on battery electric. Just on that, the government has, uh, as part of the Renewable Energy Innovation Fund, which is tied to the large-scale feed-in tariff, there is a project to trial some hydrogen vehicles in the AC. It'll be about 18. Uh, and so they're due to come in 2018. Thanks, Antonio. 2018. Um, interestingly, just this week, Toyota was in town and they brought, they've got three hydrogen vehicles in Australia and they brought one and showed it to the ACT government. Interesting discussion with them. Uh, they see, Toyota sees hydrogen as an important pathway forward and so clearly you're seeing different manufacturers taking, I guess, some different pathways on what they think the right technology is. Um, Toyota have already started selling those overseas, they were telling me. They reckon they've sold around 1,500 of them in the US and Europe. Their key constraint is the refuelling stations at this point. Now, their argument was that because the hydrogen tanks are much lighter, uh, the vehicles are much lighter, and so therefore there's an opportunity there. But uh, clearly, I think different... And I claim not to be an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I think there's quite a debate technologically out there about what is the better pathway. Great. Before we move on to the next question, do any of the other panellists just want to have a quick response, sort of one or two minutes to any of the questions or some of the reports? You can fight amongst yourselves for who goes first. Um, just one comment to make is that I hope um, the report's wrong. I hope it happens much quicker than it actually does. A, uh, a, a fact in New York City when, the, when horse buggies were prevalent... It took 14 years from the introduction of an internal combustion vehicle to um, basically fill New York streets. So if you take uh, 2016 as year one, we're basically looking at by 2030 you should see electric vehicles um, with the adoption and leadership of countries like Norway um, expanding and supporting other countries develop the initiatives to help drive the uptake of electric vehicles. By, by 2030 we should see a, a considerable um, proportion of cars on the roads, um, hopefully the majority. I guess I just wanted to say as well that I think there are other things that are moving quickly. Um, I'm a big believer in subnational government uh, action. I, that includes the ACT, obviously, but also um, other states and territories. And uh, it's very easy to get uh, a little depressed if you are in thinking about climate change over the past couple decades. Um, but in fact, um, did you know that two-thirds of the Australian population lives somewhere in Australia where there is a net zero target by 2050 or earlier? That's not advertised, is it? We don't think of that as a statistic of Australia because we think mostly about federal policies. So I think that if states and territories and cities begin to say, we are going to plan for our zero emission future, uh, if two-thirds of Australia does it, I think the other third will come along, will find a way to change the rhetoric and come along. Simon, did you want to... Well, Penny gave me a good intro. Um, speaking of things that are moving really fast, um, the, the entire energy industry is in this thing they call the energy revolution. Um, PV and batteries and new uh, business models and new commercial models around energy. For me, um, electric vehicles are really just a, a, a piece of that, that overall puzzle. It's a big, complicated puzzle. 
um, you can drive up Northbourne Avenue here and see a handful of, of big developments going on. Um, any number around Canberra, Canberra is growing very fast. Um, and those developments, of course, will be built and they will last 30 or 40 or, or 50 years. Um, but if I go on holiday for six months, I don't know my industry anymore. Um, <laughs> so I, I have to plan now um, for, for this future that we, we know is going to happen. Um, and so for me, an electric vehicle, you know, I don't care about cars, really. Um, to me, an electric vehicle is just a big battery on, on wheels. Um, the, the industry, the energy industry and the built environment really only just got its head around batteries a little bit and now somebody's gone and stuck wheels on the things. Um, and so these batteries are now moving from place to place on us. This certainly makes it more difficult. Um, so, you know, the, the, the puzzle is, is around how we're going to manage these batteries. Your electric vehicle in your garage, you know, in a couple of years you'll have a battery in your home and you'll have an electric vehicle in your garage. And your electric vehicle in your garage will have five or ten times the storage capacity of the thing in your home. And you might have two cars. Um, add it all up, that's an incredible amount of storage. And uh, Michael showed a graph about how it could, you know, you could charge these things and it wouldn't have a lot of impact on the network. That's kind of true. Um, it's really true, don't worry. It's really true, as long as um, everyone does the right thing at the right time. Um, and if there's one thing I've learned is that you can't depend on people. So what that means is that we need some intelligent solutions around that. We need some intelligent solutions about how to fit electric vehicles into this bigger puzzle and how we can coordinate the charging and discharging of that, how we can incentivise it. Not just, I think, you know, in the short term, um, the things about taxes and road tolls and all the rest of it are great, but in the end it's got to be a good commercial decision a good financial decision to have an electric vehicle um, with or without incentives. Um, and part of that is, is this whole um, fitting in with, with the big picture, with the big picture around renewables uh, and batteries and new energy systems, um, which is a, it's a huge undertaking um, and it, it doesn't stop by any means with electric vehicles. I've got one question down the back here. I'm Michael Salt from Arup. Um, I just had a question uh, to, to the panel in general. So another issue besides cost, and particularly Ambassador, you can answer on this, is uh, consumer perceptions and also interoperability of technology and charging. That big issues for electric vehicle uptake. I'm just wondering, from the Norwegian example, if you had um, some insight into that, oh, and just uh, general comments from the panel. I'm not sure if I can provide you with too much insight to the sort of technological aspect of your question, but I think uh, perception, uh, I think, may be an important aspect which we have not touched upon, actually. And I, I had a meeting with uh, some representatives in the ACT government yesterday, and we were asked in that meeting, um, or it was last week, but uh, anyway, I was asked um, uh, if it was sort of an image issue in Norway uh, to own and drive an electric vehicle, so if it sort of sent out a positive image uh, for the owners of these cars. And that's definitely the case. Uh, and, and Canberra, you, uh, I mean, people here are just sort of right in the sort of uh, 
core of those type of people who would love to <laughs> drive an electric vehicle. Uh, high education, high income level, high sort of uh, public consciousness in a sense, and, and you care obviously uh, a lot about your environment and climate change. And by owning and buying and driving an electric vehicle, you really signal to your community that you care about these issues, that you take on that sort of common responsibility through your own choices as a consumer. Uh, so thus, that has obviously been part of it. And, and uh, for now, you can see that the sort of strata in Norwegian society where you have the most prevalence of electric vehicles is obviously uh, exactly in that type of, uh, of uh, group I think that the perception issue is an interesting one. Again, talking to the fellow from Toyota earlier in the week, he was talking about the fact that only 1% of vehicle sales in Australia now have become hybrids, despite the fact that Prius and other models are actually cost comparative to other vehicles on the market. And so he was identifying the fact that clearly there's just some perception issues there in hybrids, let alone the next step along the spectrum. Uh, so I think that that is, is an ongoing issue that we need to, to have some thought on. Professor Sackett. I just wanted to pick up the point on common infrastructure for charging, which I think is, uh, I'm not an expert in that field, but I think it's really important. And again, I'd like to flag what, um, what the subnational governments in Australia are doing. Again, you may not know that they met together in the ACT uh, in August. Uh, to talk about climate change issues and policies, and I understand they'll meet again in Queensland. The memorandum that they put out from that meeting specifically noted, among five different things, electrical vehicles as one that they wanted to work together on. And again, I think the, the more parties that you can pull in, uh, you not only have cost benefits in terms of, ma of um, y you know, uh, benefits of scale in buying, but hopefully um, in thinking early on about the compatibility of infrastructure so that you don't have to look for just the, uh, you know, the place to charge your particular car as opposed to your neighbor's particular car. I think it's vitally important. There's a, I'll just add to that that there's a, an industry... Um, an industry, not necessarily an association, but grouping across all of the manufacturers that are um, actively talking about what the charging infrastructure standards are going to be nationally. Um, set aside from that conversation, generally the market will work these things out regardless. So the same as if you want to, um, when an iPhone comes out and they change their charging jack, well, someone's going to make an adapter that's going to work on that. So um, there are some charging networks around Australia where people are, are, um, are starting to build into some of their business models that support the electric vehicle industry that are giving people the ability to handle that interoper interoperability between different types of charging networks. There is obviously the still the standalone with Tesla, but certainly with, with models like Tritium, there's a charging network, uh, fast charging network being rolled out in the ACT, uh, and the same thing across in the, in the west south of Perth. Um, these issues are not necessarily new, they've been tackled internationally before and um, I guess one of the benefits of being a, um, a laggard in this space is that you do get to, take, um, get to take away a lot of the learnings internationally from some of these infrastructure type projects and some of the issues uh, and the technology issues that people face. Um, so 
at a uh, certainly at a regional and a, and a national level in Australia, while we are a little bit behind the the game, um, we'll certainly take a, a lot of these opportunities to market more efficiently than the rest of the world um, did. We can um, sit back and quite happily take notice of the mistakes that have been made and not replicate them in Australia. Um, the solutions to a lot of these issues have they've already been resolved. Um, they're not. Certainly they're not new issues. Um, they have been resolved at both a, a policy, a technology space, um, and, and a big aspect of electric vehicles is around how people finance them. So financing models and unique ways of people funding the purchase of cars, um, the asset utilisation of them, all of these problems are being solved internationally. And um, in Australia, our opportunity, the opportunity we have is to work out, well, um, how do we take some of those learnings and apply it to the, the jurisdictional and regional and local government um, um, projects, if you like.